Amen. Well, today, as we said, we're preaching from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. If you have your books, your iPhones, or whatever it is, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. That's chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Now, whether a Christian or not, you will instantly recognize today's parable. Over the centuries, it's been given a number of names, the lost son, the running father, or as you may know it, the prodigal son. It's perhaps one of Christ's best-known parables, one that is respected by Christian and non-Christian alike. It's inspired writers and poets and musicians for hundreds of years, from Rudyard Kipling to Rembrandt to the Rolling Stones. (laughs) It's true. You can go and look at it online. There's a song called The Prodigal Son, and there's Mick Jagger singing it out, howling it out, uh, The Prodigal Son. It's inspired many people. The Lord indeed moves in mysterious ways. Well, this is the third and final parable in chapter 15 all of which is based on loss and redemption. As I've said, there's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and our son, and our passage text, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. Something gets lost, it goes astray, it's searched for, found, and then rejoiced over. So let's turn to our passage and discover exactly what is lost. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. Give me my inheritance. Now back then, as now, an inheritance is given when the parent has passed away, when the parent has died. What the son was asking for was incredibly hurtful and insulting. Dad, I want my inheritance. Yes, son, you you shall have it when I'm dead. No, dad, I want it now. Now, by saying this, the son knew that he was severing his relationship with the father. He was literally unsunning himself. But he didn't care. He was, in a sense, saying, Dad, I, I want your things more than I want a relationship with you. Your value to me is your goods, your cash, your gold, your things. So, Let's skip to the chase. I want my inheritance. Now, in Jewish law, upon a father's death, the youngest son would receive a third of the estate. The father responds to his youngest son's request and allows him to make a choice, to use his free will. And so he lets the son go his own way. Son, if if you want to do this, I will not stop you. And I have to ask myself, is that what I'm like with God the Father? Do I ask to go my own way, keep God out of the picture, maybe occasionally call upon him when things get hard in my life, when there's trouble? Oh, Lord, Father, where are you? But apart from that, just let me run my own life, God. You you keep out of the equation. So the story so far is a story of death, the death of a relationship. And in verse 13, we see, after gathering his father's money and possessions, he set off to a distant foreign land. He's young. He's wealthy. He's independent. New sights, new sounds, new cash in his pocket. He has the world at his feet. He wants to be free, free from the care and the guidance of his father. 
freedom. He wants liberty, independence, to be subject to no one. He wants to be the Lord of his own life. So, free from restraint, he sets off. And there, he squanders his wealth in reckless, wild living. Now, the word wild means to be out of control. He leaves his father to be independent, in control of his own life, but he ends up wild. He ends up out of control. He parties hard. He's living recklessly. He's lying with prostitutes. And for a while, in his mind, things were great. There's no rules, no restrictions, his desires, his ways. That is, until verse 14, when he had spent everything he had. At this time, as we read, there was a great famine in the country, and he began to be in real need. So he went out, and he hired himself to a citizen in the foreign land who sent him into the field to feed pigs. Now, Leviticus 11.7 states that a Jew is to have no contact with a pig. To a Jew, a pig is repugnant. It's, an, in their minds, an unclean animal that will defile them. It could be the equivalent to us Gentiles as a dung beetle, something that's disgusting. And yet here he finds himself reduced to serving not only a foreigner, which in the Jewish world was bad enough, they perceived Gentiles as being dogs, but not only was it bad enough, but he was there when his boss was a pig. The pig was worth more than him in the eyes of the world. He had become worth less than a pig. And that's just something as a little side note to to think about ourselves because Satan can often pull us away. We want our freedom and so Satan tempts. In our family we call it the hook. So fishes, you know, as you guys know, they don't tend to go looking for hooks to jump on. And so they have to be tempted onto there. So there's worm, there's something that looks good. And of course they bite it and then they're hooked and then they belong, they're captured by something else. And so it is with us. And Satan, and the way that he tempts us, he, he doesn't just give us, show us the ugly truth of where we're going. He shows something that's attractive, something that we want, hooks, and then we belong to him. Back to the passage. <laughs> so to a Jew, to feed a pig, to be a servant of a pig, I mean, that's the ultimate humiliation for a Jew. It's diametrically opposite to the freedom and liberty that he sought after, that his self reliance that, the, that, that what the world had promised him would provide. It was the complete opposite. As a rabbinical saying states, cursed be the man who would breed swine. And if you're interested, that's Baba Kama 82b. How far the son had drifted from the father. His nation had drifted from God. His false liberty, his self-reliance from the Father had socially degraded him. He was the son of a large landowner and now he was a destitute pig feeder. In Jewish society, you can't get any lower than that. You can imagine him saying to himself as he's there, "Look, look what I've become. My father was a rich landowner I had his love and I had everything I wanted and now I'm living in squalor. Verse 16. He longed to eat the pods 
that the pigs were eating, pig swill. Now, this wasn't scraps of old vegetables that, you know, we might give pigs here. It wasn't leftovers, you know, leftover meal from last night, spaghetti bolognese or a chimichanga or whatever's going. This, that's deluxe pig swill. No, this was in the middle of a famine. And the pigs, they're eating slops, and no one would give him anything. Now, this is audience, audience participation moment coming up. So this is the closest that I could find. So what they was eating, there, the pods are called korap pots, which you can find in the Mediterranean and Greece and so forth. And uh, this is uh, actually a white mesquite, but it's the cl- so it gives you an idea of what we're talking about in the pods here. You know, they are, um, well, anyone want to try one? Yes, my el- youngest put her hand up. The answer is no. In fact, I, I kid you not, this morning, uh, where we live is near a mountain, and so we have all sorts of rodents and wildlife and you name it. I saw a rat with one of these in its mouth. <laughs> and I thought, well, thank you for giving me that analogy for the sermon. But, but this is what he was hoping he could eat. So these are always been associated with famines. In the uh, um, Spanish Civil War last century, when there wasn't any food, this is what they ate. So anyway, I'll leave these here, and you can consume at your leisure. So when the money ran out, so did his wild party friends. Their love and their friendship for him, well, where was it? It evaporated. It was conditional on his cash. They didn't love him. They loved what they could get out of him. But his father's love was unconditional. His worldly desires drove him away from the one person who truly loved him. His freedom had left him lonely, desperate, and degraded. He'd hit rock bottom, and at this point, verse 17, he came to himself, meaning he came to his senses. And doesn't hardship have a powerful way of bringing us to our senses? Verse 17, here I am, dying of hunger, where my father's servants have plenty of food and food to spare. I will get up and go home. He clearly sees where his self-reliance, where his way has got him, and he heads back home to his father. But was, this, was this like a real repentance? Or was it some sort of practical decision? You know, I'm starving. My father has food. I'll go back to him. But what we read in verse 18 states his remorse is genuine. He expressed sorrow for not what he had lost, but what he had done. That he had failed to honor God by disdaining the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. He plans to say, verse 18, to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's a real, genuine apology. A realization, a a confession of guilt. It's a case of real, genuine repentance. So, verse 20, he arose. And he went back to the Father. And this is the turning point in this parable. He rose up, anastasis in the original Greek. Anastasis bearing the same root as the word anastasis, which is the word for resurrection. He rose up. He came, metaphorically speaking, 
back to life. And this is the point of repentance. And we we all know, I'm sure Pastor Bryce has told you there is the word metanoia in the Greek, which is is one of, you know, turning back towards the Lord. There's a stop sign. Stop. You're going the wrong way. Turn around and go back. It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. And he turned away from his spiritual life, which was bringing him death, and turned back to his father, who was offering him life. So he rose up. He set off. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. But how did he see him? Because every day you can imagine the father just peering on the horizon day after day after day, straining his eyes, hoping desperately that he would see the return of his son. His son who disowned him. His son who squandered his wealth. I mean, the father, you have to to understand, the father had been mortally insulted by his son, who was supposed to love and honor him. His son broke his heart, and we know he squandered his wealth, which, by the way, would have lowered the father's standing in society to add more insult to injury. So what did the father do? Did he stand on his balcony? Did he he look down and say, look what the cat dragged in. It's better be good. (laughs) Or did he shout at him? I told you so. You didn't listen to me, and now look at you. You know, son of mine, get off this land before I call the dogs on you. Or worse. According to Jewish law, Deuteronomy 21, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son or daughter (laughs) who does not obey his father or mother, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of the town, and be stoned to death. Is that what the father does? No. Verse 20. The father felt compassion. He ran to his son. He embraced him. He literally flung his arms around him. The father was impervious to the stench of pig swill coming from his son, and he kissed him. And the word kissed is in the present continuous tense, which means he held him and he kissed him again and again and again. It's an ongoing love. It's a passionate love. The father ran and he embraced his son. Now, first century patriarchs did not run. It was deemed totally undignified for people at certain levels of society. And again, it wasn't just because of their status, but because they were wearing long garments. And the only way to run in those garments was to hitch up your skirt, expose your legs, and and run out, run out like a clown. It would be like watching, say, like a, a, a justice of the Supreme Court, you know, hitch up his or her black robes and sort of run across the corridors of the Supreme Court. It's unseemingly, it's debasing, it's embarrassing. But the father doesn't care. He doesn't give it a thought. He doesn't even wait for the son's apology or his excuse. Verse 21. You know, you can see it there. I mean, the son only gets halfway through his I'm sorry, dad speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. But the father, he's not listening. Verse 22. And he shouts out for the servants. Quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the best robe and ring were a sign of position and standing. They conveyed authority. You had a place in that family. In his destitution, the son went barefoot. But this was only fitting for a worker or a slave. Shoes marked him out as a freeman. And the fattened calf that we hear about here, well, that was kept for a special occasion. You probably all got something like a bottle or something or some special food that you keep on special occasions. You know, well, this was it. It was the fattened calf. Fattened calf was given for him. A wretched, low life, pig feeding, selfish, whoremongering, insulting, wastrel, prodigal son, which was all eradicated erased by the Father's love and grace that elevated the Son and brought him back into the family. Well, the word prodigal we have from the Latin prodigus, which means recklessly extravagant, recklessly extravagant. And as we learned in verse 13, the Son had squandered all his inheritance on worthless, reckless living. And so it's an appropriate term for him, recklessly extravagant, the prodigal son. But it could also be applied to the father, a father who was grievously wronged, a father who legally could have had his son stoned, and yet a father who was recklessly extravagant in love. Now we know that this text that we're reading here today, learning about, is a parable. It's containing a, it's a short story and it contains a lesson. The loving father is our father in heaven. And the wayward prodigal son is, well, me. Mm, Perhaps you. (laughs) Perhaps you've wandered away from God. Perhaps like the younger son, you have left the father and gone out into this world to seek fulfillment and gratification, shrugging off any form of outside control and sought independence and liberty. You've sought to find your heart's desire and fulfill your longings through the things of this world. Please don't tell me I'm the only one. (laughs) You know, you see it in the the, the signs outside in Phoenix. You, do you, (laughs) do what's good for you. Have I, have you sought to shake off God's guidance and loving rule? Yet have we found it disappointing and frustrating and found that this autonomy, this liberty is actually in a sense uh, a false liberty, that it's more of a a trap than a liberation, that this desire for self-control has actually, like with the prodigal son, left us out of control. It's promised us the earth, but it's taken things away and it's led us into a a somewhat chaotic or confusing life now of course this is a spectrum you know we're not all saying that we're all like the prodigal son have done his what he's done but of course we have to some degrees and we do continue to some degrees but as benjamin franklin one of the authors and signatories of the declaration of independence wrote nothing brings more pain than too much pleasure Nothing brings more bondage than too much liberty. Discard God 
and you will have liberty. Liberty that tramples you and leads you into bondage. It may be sugar-coated. It may be in a gilded cage. It may be over periods of time, years, decades. But that's where you will find yourself. It is God's freedom that gives true liberty. Unchained liberality leads to discontent, bondage, and a sense of lostness, as we've found with the prodigal son. I've had the pleasure of meeting a number of, um, well, these were guys, but of course women as well, and these men were saying how (coughs) they really reached the top in their field, extremely rich people, and that they spent their whole lives clambering to get to the top because, you know, what, what, what do humans want? Power, prestige, position, place. And they got there. And he said, well, what, what, once you got the house and the car, once you got the college education, which is all, you know, all these things are good and important, don't get me wrong. Once you've climbed to the top of the tower, you realized that there's nothing there. And he said that he realized he'd been climbing the wrong tower and spent his life chasing which could not satisfy him and losing his family and himself in the process. Well, maybe that's just one example. Well, actually, there's more. (laughs) But this is what Satan promises. Promises the glitter and the gold and the cage and the, the, the zeal, the zest of life. But it'll trample over you. Bernard Levin, to bring an English guy into the equation was an English journalist. He was an author and a broadcaster. He, he wasn't a Christian. However, he wrote, Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with non-material blessings, such as happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside of them. And that however much food and drink they pour into their lives, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends that they parade around the edges of it, it aches. A quiet, nagging ache. So the question today for us is, are we aching? Is there a hole in our lives? Like the prodigal son, perhaps we've tried the ways of the world, and yet we've found that what they offer is fleeting, unsatisfying, corroding, empty. Perhaps you who are listening, perhaps you're exhausted, trying to find acceptance in a way in this world, self-esteem through this world. Well, if that is us, if that is you, then now is the time to rise up, turn back to the Father, back to Christ. It's time to go home. But perhaps you think you're unworthy. Perhaps you're too guilty. Perhaps you're just too far gone. Well, you're probably right. But I've got some good news with a repentant heart. Well, yes, you may say. I may say, talking to myself. Yes, I understand that intellectually anyway, and maybe God can forgive others. Chris, Jeff, and Linda, but, but, but can he forgive me? Yes, he can, and he does. 
But Julian, you don't know the things that I have done, thought or said. I mean, I can't even forgive myself. Yes, you know, on the outside, you know, I may look the part, but on the inside, I'm broken. On the inside, I'm a bit of a stinking mess. I've sunk too low. I'm, I'm just irredeemable. Yet the only person that is telling you that is Satan. The only one keeping the memory of your sin alive is you. As Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? Go on. It is finished. He didn't say, it is finished. But sorry, Jim, I couldn't quite pull it off for you. No, he said, it is finished. All who come to Jesus Christ with a repentant heart are accepted to the banquet. Come home. All who place their trust and their lives will be welcomed. So, have you insulted God the Father? So did the youngest son. Have you lived recklessly, callously, done bad things? Well, so did the youngest son. And when he repented and turned back to the Father, he was received. He was accepted and loved and celebrated, and so it will be with you. Now, my daughter and I, we recently returned from a trip to London. Uh, And above the west door of Westminster Abbey, uh, there's a statue of a man named Maximilian Kolb. Bit of a mouthful, but Maximilian Kolb. He was a Franciscan friar, and in the war he uh, sheltered 2,000 refugee Jews who were fleeing from the Holocaust. Well, he was eventually detained, and he was thrown into Auschwitz, a Nazi concentration camp. And while he was there, there were three, three guys, three prisoners, three men who had escaped from the camp. And so in order to, to, to deter further prisoners, further attempts, the SS officer picked ten men and sentenced them to death by starvation. Now one of those in front of him broke down and cried, my wife, my children. And so Kolb volunteered to die in his place. Now this is truly, would you not say, an inspiring story. Maximilian Kolb, like Christ, dying in the place of an innocent man who didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve death. It's an immensely inspiring and courageous act. I don't know about you, but it challenges me to the core in my faith. Yet here's the thing. Christ died to save not the innocent, but the guilty. Those who deserve punishment. Those who were his enemies. Me, and perhaps you. Romans 5.10 For Jesus is the Lord who bends down and washes the feet of those who are to betray him, John 13. This is the Lord of the second chance, the Lord of the seventh chance, the 77th chance. This is the Lord who is calling you, calling his beloved wayward son, his beloved wayward daughter, to come away from the pig swill and to be clothed in his love. This is the Lord, the Father, who is calling you out from the world to come to him. Because as we know in 1 Corinthians, God's love, it's patient, it's kind, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong, always patient, always trust, always hopes. God's love always perseveres. So, as history shows, 
converted prodigal sons and daughters, well, what do they do? They get put on the trash heap, you know, they're too damaged. No, you're saved, yeah, but, you know, just sort of slink off in the corner. Well, no, God uses them in a profound way for a profound effect. Examples, please. Well, think of St. Paul himself. Before his repentance and conversion, he breathed out murderous threats against the church. He tracked down and he dragged out Christians, men and women, you know, in front of their children. He wasn't a nice, cuddly guy. He was, he was a zealot. He was a, he was a bad guy. Dragged them away from their families and threw them in prison with murderous threats. Yet Christ transformed this wayward son into being one of the greatest men in world history. From violent persecutor to loving defender. God made the change and he can also do it with me and you. And I read from um, as a pastor in England of one young mother called Monica. And Monica was a, a Christian woman and she was having real problems with her rebellious teenage son. He was lazy. He was bad-tempered. He was a cheat and a liar, and a thief. And later on, through, though outwardly he became very respectful, he was, a, he was a lawyer, his life was dominated by worldly ambition and a desire to make money. His morals were loose. He lived with several different women, and he had a son by one of them. And at one stage, he joined this, like, this sort of weird religious cult and adopted all sort of kinds of straight, strange practices. He was living his life the way he wanted, the way he thought would bring him contentment and happiness. But all it bought was desperation. His mother prayed endlessly for Christ to break into his life, into the life of her wayward son, and he did. The son repented and came home. And that man's name was Augustine, Saint Augustine converted, as you know, in 386 AD, and is perhaps one of the greatest Western theologians in the church. From a life that was completely lost and messed up to a life that led people for millennia. Other prodigals, such as John Newton, you know him, author of Amazing Grace, uh, is a one-time slave trader, now slave emancipator. There's Dorothy Day uh, here in the U.S. You've probably heard of her. Uh, who after fully embracing the the liberal uh, secular culture of the the roaring 20s, having numerous love affairs and devastated by an abortion, which she said was the greatest tragedy of her life, she wrote, I thought I was free, a free, emancipated young woman, and found out that I wasn't at all. Christ called his wayward daughter home, And she spent her life providing a voice for the outcast, the poor in society. And of course, Dwight L. Moody, you know, he's sort of someone you sort of hold up there, never did anything wrong. You know, he was was born from his mother's womb and then did everything right for his whole life and end of story. Well, apparently not. (laughs) So as a youth, it says he could hardly have been called a saint. As his supervisor wrote, I can truly say that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his. I've seldom met an applicant more unlikely to ever become a Bible-focused Christian, let alone anyone of any benefit to society. This lost son returned to Christ 
and as you know, went out to preach to thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, founding Bible, translating ministries, launching uh, revival campaigns around the world throughout America and Europe, bringing many people to Christ. You've got to remember this. It's the Holy Spirit that does it through you, through the willing, obedient heart. You bring your empty hand in obedience, and the Holy Spirit does the miracles. That's what he does. (laughs) So one guy... One was being a certain granite stonecutter who he brought to faith in Aberdeenshire in Scotland, whose name was James Gibb. <laughs> that was my great-grandfather. Way to go, Moody. So there you go. So Christ died for Paul, Dorothy Day, and Moody so that lives could be transformed and turned around. And Christ also died for you. Converted prodigals of whatever spectrum are powerful, You're amongst good company, and God can do mighty things through you. But perhaps you're there and you're sort of, Julian, hold hold on just a minute. Um, I'm not a prodigal son. I mean, sure, you know, I can see a few in the congregation who are, but not me. Oh, no. I've squandered nothing. I don't dishonor my parents. I work hard. I pay my taxes. That's Nothing extravagantly reckless about me. I believe you. But you see, our story, the parable, hasn't yet ended. There is more than one son in this story. As an English pastor, uh, uh, Peter, his name is Peter Nichols, uh, when he was teaching the Sunday school, uh, he asked the kids, okay, children, who in this story is not happy about the return of the youngest son. One kid put his hand up. Yes, William? The fattened calf. (laughs) (laughs) And whilst that's true, there was also someone else who was very unhappy about the youngest son's return. Look down in your, your Bibles at verse 25. Now the father's oldest son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called out one of the servants and asked, What is going on? The servant replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the eldest son was angry and he refused to go in. So the father comes out and he he, he pleads, he he begs him to, to come in and celebrate with them. Well, the eldest son, he's furious. He's livid. And you can see in verse 30, paraphrasing it, saying, Look, Father, I've been working hard for you all these years. How can you welcome back this low-life, selfish, deplorable son? I mean, he insulted you. He goes out. He devours your wealth, living a debauched life. It all blows up in his face. He returns, and you celebrate? He doesn't deserve it. Because by bringing the son back into the house, he's made him an heir again. Despite his selfishness, his meanness, and his wayward life, he's been brought back into the family. And the elder son, well, he's been out working hard. I mean, so he's got a point, hasn't he? He's been out there working hard in the fields. And uh, 
he's just sitting there watching his heartbroken father day after day, sitting on the porch, looking out for his debauched lost son. I mean, it's enough to make your blood boil, isn't it? Well, it is, until we hear what the father has to say, 31. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father replies, I am always with you, and all that I have is yours. He's saying to his son, it's not about things. It's not about inheritance wealth. It's about a relationship. I love you and your brother, and all that I do is for you. Yes, your brother messed up. He failed. He failed badly. But he realizes that. He's remorseful. He's genuinely repentant. He has changed and turned away from that life. He has come home to be with his family. Son, come in and be with the family. The youngest son had repented. He was lost, but is now found. The elder son, however, doesn't know that he is lost. Sure, he he may have never left home, but his heart is a long way from it. Emotionally, he left a long time ago. Because as we've read, Jesus tells this parable of two sets of people. Chapter 15, verse 1, tax collectors and sinners. This is the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Two different types of people, tax collectors and sinners. People like the prodigal son. Those who know that they haven't got their act together and need God. But he is also telling it to the Pharisees and the scribes. Those who think they have their act together and don't really need God. People like the elder, respectable son. You see, Satan doesn't mind which side of the horse you fall off as long as you fall. Because he's holding up Jesus, a spiritual mirror to us, and he's saying, is there a danger of you of being one of these? Are you lost like the younger son, undeserving of the father's love and grace, or are you like the older son, Julian? Are you, you know, perhaps, perhaps, I wish I hadn't said my name then, but perhaps respectable and dependable, you know, got your act together. I haven't. Um, you know, but, you know, I call on God, you know, when I need him, but... Um, The thing is, ironically, the twist in this story, as we leave this parable, is that it's the elder, not the younger, who is lost. Now, we're not told whether the elder son eventually joins the party. We're left hanging. Because the decision is left for you, for me. And it's time to take a good look in my spiritual mirror, the Bible, and honestly assess how I am doing. Again, I'm not talking on a salvific manner here. Saved by grace alone in Jesus Christ. Not works-based. 
but a tree is judged by its fruit. Now, how do you know if a tree is healthy and alive or dead? Salvation through faith alone produces fruit. It's the fruit, not the root. So whether I or you are like the younger or elder son, it is time to put aside my selfish self-focus or perhaps my self-righteousness to be smothered by God's love and transformation. Because again, I repeat, all who place their trust, their faith, their lives in Jesus Christ, regardless of who they are or what they have done, are clean, forgiven, made new, and then used by Christ. Used by Christ to bring restoration. Because Satan hooks you, and then he uses you, abuses you, degrades you, and then discards you. Uses, abuses, discards. Whereas God uses you, restores you, and puts you to good use in bringing love, light to other people. It's time to enter into the house. It's time to join the celebration. So again, whoever you are, or wherever you are, it's time to come home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see.